Welcome to Class 38. Today we actually got all the way to Mount Doom, and although there's much more I would have liked to say, I was fairly pleased that we got through as much as we did. Okay, ready? It is my goal, humble though it may seem, as it's two chapters shy of the end of today's reading, it is my goal to get to the cracks of doom. Okay? We're going to get the ring as far as the fire today, and then we will commence the denouement on Monday. Right? That's the plan. That is going to require focus, effort, and diligent energy, so let us begin. I want to start with Sam's ring monologue. Right? He gets, we, 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 get, we get a Sam Gamgee uh, uh, ring-induced monologue, which is one of my favorite ring-induced monologues. This is even better than, than Gollum the Great. Page 880. At the bottom of the page. This is as he's, he's, he's wearing the ring and he's about to cross into Mordor in the top of the pass. He felt that he had from now on only two choices. To forbear the ring, though it would torment him, or to claim it and challenge the power that sat in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. Now, our first impulse might be to laugh at this statement. Like, Sam Gamgee has the viable option of challenging Sauron. It seems silly. And it also almost seems a little bit um, counter to the ring's normal MO, to the way that people normally think. They don't leap to that right away. I mean, remember Boromir's long, slow warm-up to that process. I mean, he didn't become a king benevolent and wise until like a page and a half in uh, to his process. Already the ring tempted him, gnawing at his will and reason. Wild fantasies arose in his mind, and he saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to, overth- to the overthrow of Barad-dûr. And then all the clouds rolled away, and the white sun shone, and at his command the Vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. Now, what do you notice here? Thinking of the, of, of the times that we've seen the ring acting on people before, what do you notice here? Derek? The ring's actually using some pretty nice imagery. It has well, well, it's not going to be a double. It's got to be full of flowers. <laughs> Good. This is much more forceful than we see the ring normally operating, but it's also it's taking a, a Sam-relevant tack, Right? Uh, remember that the, uh, people have talked this way before. Um, you know, that would be the path of the ring to my mind, right? Like Gandalf says, I would take it with the desire to do good, right? And that's, that's how he'd be ensnared by it. Goadriel speaks similarly. Um, you know, I would overthrow Sauron. I would do all this good. I would set myself up. She would be, she already is, a powerful monarch, benevolent and wise. I mean, that's already on her job description that's already part of her own personal resume so hey it's a very natural step for her since she's so good and she's so powerful and she's so wise uh why not put her in charge of the show this is exactly frodo's argument and sam's right you should take the ring go Adriel. you would do good with it you would you would stop them digging up bagshot row and turning the gaffer out You'd, you'd, you'd pay some people out for their dirty work. Now, Galadriel recognizes, she says, I would. That's where it would begin, but it wouldn't end there. Right? So we can see the way in which the ring does sort of know how to approach particular people. What is attractive to Sam about this? We saw also what was attractive to Boromir in the ring. What's attractive to Sam here? What's attractive to Sam, and why does it fail? Marta? Um, well, I mean, he says, he does say that he'll be the hero of the Great Age, striding with flaming sword, and armies will flop into his claw, etc., etc. But then the exact next image <coughs> is clouds rolling away, light sun shining, um, gardens, flowers, Mordor being undone by this beautiful spreading garden. So that, I think, is kind of he doesn't want to take his place on a, on a dark throne. He wants to, over, like, the dark throne to be gone completely. 
Exactly. It's, this is not, I will seize power for myself and become the greatest of all kings. He doesn't imagine himself a king benevolent and wise. He imagines healing, right? This is, this is a gardener's fantasy of power. This, a different kind of power. Um, remember Sam's reaction when they approach Mordor for the first time. When, when they finish crossing the dead marshes, which he thought were bad enough, and then they get to the desolation before the Black Gates. And Sam says, I feel sick. Right? Nothing will ever grow there. Um, but Sam could make it happen. Sam could transform the whole place into a blooming garden with flowers and fruited trees. That's tempting. Kathy? Um, another reason why it feels like why that dark imagery goes away is he says his love for his master, like, helped him to hold firm. Good. Yeah. Look at that next paragraph. In, this hour, in that hour of trial, it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm, but also deep down in him lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden, even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. The one small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. So we see two things that save him. First, his love for Frodo. He's not going to just forget Frodo and leave him and go on and charge into Mordor to overtake Sauron himself. Um, he considers Frodo more highly than he considers himself. He puts Frodo in front of himself. So he's not going to be very seriously tempted by sort of self-focused temptations when he's got Frodo to worry about, when Frodo is in danger and needs him. So it's the love of his master that protects him, but also his own hobbit sense. He doesn't need a whole realm as a garden. He just needs his own garden. His own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Sam is protected from temptations to dominion because he doesn't want to dominate anybody. Now, Goadriel, she's tempted by dominion. We remember, as we talked about at the time, back in the Silmarillion, she's always been kind of attracted with the idea of dominion. She wants to have realms to rule at her own will. Sam doesn't want that. The ring is on fundamentally foreign ground here, trying to tempt Sam. His... his his monologue doesn't go in the same direction as other people's go. Um, again, he doesn't end up a king, benevolent and wise. Usually, the more it goes on, it becomes all about them and their own elevation. Sam is not interested in his own elevation. It's his, his hobbit sense, one could also say, as, it's, as it has gone on to, to be described, his humility. He doesn't want to elevate himself. And... And he shrinks. He was not really in any doubt. He knew that he must go down to the gate and not linger any more. With a shrug of his shoulders, as if to shake off the shadow and dismiss the phantoms, he began slowly to descend. With each step, he seemed to diminish. He had not gone far before he had shrunk again to a very small and frightened hobbit. The great Samwise the Great, Samwise the Strong, hero of the age. That picture, that illusion fades and is gone. And then what happens when he gets into Kirith, the, the tower of Kirith Ungol? This uh, I guess I've been dissing the film so much recently, there's no point stopping now. I hated this scene in the films. <laughs> I'm just going to say. I, on the one hand, I was kind of glad that they kept it because it's such a wonderful film uh, scene, but what they did with it, um, I hated. I'm sorry. There really aren't that many scenes that I just, like, completely hate. I mean, you know, most of them are like, well, you know, not sure. I'm such as big a fan of that as another possible way they could have done it. But there are only, like, a couple places that really tick me off. This was one. And because it's, it ticks me off because it's so close to the real scene, but yet completely and utterly missing the point. I'm talking about the scene when Sam is on the stairs and the orc comes down and then turns around and runs away from him. Remember how it happens in the films? Tony, how does it happen in the films? Uh, they see a shadow, and he's, you know, he's like walking up the stairs, growling, and he's got these two giant swords, and the shadow's huge, and they start running away, 
and then he actually comes out, and then they laugh at him. And then they laugh and turn around and charge, and he and he kills them. I mean, it's not like they actually make him, in fact, a wimp. Um, but yeah, they they're afraid of his shadow. But then when they actually see him, they're like, oh, it's no big deal. Kind of like tantalizingly like what happens and yet almost completely opposite. The last full paragraph on 883. His will was too weak and slow to restrain his hand. It dragged at the chain and clutched the ring. But Sam did not put it on, for even as he clasped it to his breast, an orc came clattering down. Leaping out of a dark opening at the right, it ran towards him. It was no more than six paces from him when, lifting its head, it saw him, and Sam could hear its gasping breath and see the glare in its bloodshot eyes. It stopped short, aghast, for what it saw was not a small frightened hobbit trying to hold a steady sword. It saw a great silent shape, cloaked in a gray shadow, looming against the wavering light behind. In one hand it held a sword, the very light of which was a bitter pain. The other was clutched at its breast, but held concealed some nameless menace of power and doom. For a moment the orc crouched, and then with a hideous yelp of fear it turned and fled back as it had come. Never was any dog more heartened when its enemy turned tail than Sam at this unexpected flight. With a shout he gave chase. Yes, the elf warrior is loose, he cried. I'm coming. Just you show me the way up or I'll skin you. Now, remember before the, the, the mistaking him for his shadow thing is like what Shadrach, uh, Shagrat and, and Gorbag are doing, right? You know, Sam is listening to them talk about him, like, Wait, be careful of the other one that's loose, right? This elven warrior with an axe and an elf sword, right? Or maybe it's one of the Tarks. Any idea what a Tark is? Man of the West. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's... it's um, when... If you go back to the Fellowship of the Ring and you go back to the scene where Glorfindel finds them, um, when, Glorfindel, when, when Aragorn is running down the hill to Glorfindel, who is on the road, is stopping, uh, uh, Glorfindel speaks to Aragorn in Elvish, and he uses the word, a bastardized form of which is being used by the orcs here. Tarkiel. Yeah. Tarkiel is the, is the elven word, but it means man of the West, Numenorian. Um, Gondorian, basically, but kind of more than that. They keep talking about the bad old times. Um, so they're mistaking him for a Numenorian. He's either a Numenorian or he's an elf warrior, one or the other. Remember, Glorfindel didn't come along, right? The one who could conceivably have done that. They could have had exactly the kind of elf warrior that Gorbeck and, and, and Shagrat are worried about, but instead they're Sam. Um, and he's sitting there laughing like, he knows, like, they're, they're imagining this great shadowy figure out there that they can't see, and he knows that he's just this small, pathetic little thing. Now here on the steps, the true him is revealed. And what happens? The orc runs in terror, because it turns out the reality is really scary, right? And the orc sees Samwise the Strong uncloaked and runs in fear. But of course, see, the thing is, Sam has a low assessment of himself. Sam is humble. That's one of the ways that he resists the ring. But he is Samwise the Strong, hero of the age. He just single-handedly licked Shelob, the daughter of Ungoliant. I mean, he, he, he just... That was... Remember the orcs talking about that. You know, something like that has never happened in their memory. It's like, it's like something out of the bad old times. Before the Great War. What are they talking about? When the orcs talk about the Great War and the bad old times, what are they talking about? Any idea? Presumably, Jordan? Um, when the Newman Williams came and kicked someone out? Probably. Possibly even, depending on how far back they're thinking... Depends on how great the war is. Yeah, probably then, right? It's like during the times of the, of, you know, back in the Second Age and the heyday of Numenor. Possibly even the War of Wrath and the First Age. And that, of course, are exactly, is exactly the way that Sam is being described in his combat with Shelob. His, being, his hand is being compared to whose? Turins and Turins. 
I mean, his action of stabbing Shelob underneath is being explicitly paralleled to Turin killing Glaurung, one of the greatest single feats of prowess in all of the Silmarillion. Uh, Elrond says to Frodo at the end of the Council of Elrond, if all of the mighty elf friends of old, Beren and Hurin and Turin were, were assembled together, your place would be among them. The same can now plainly be said of Sam. Um, actually, this is another point that Liz Bateman made in her thesis last year. If you actually look, there are several parallels between Sam and Turin. Uh, in the, notice he contemplates suicide immediately after uh, his fight with Shewab, actually. But anyway, uh, um, sidelight, but it's really cool. Uh, Sam, Sam really has that stature. And he shows it here. Um, And it's a thing to remember uh, as we move forward. I said I wanted to come back to look at hope and despair with Frodo and Sam, because here, as you probably noticed since we've been talking about it, it comes up a lot uh, in these last chapters leading up to Mount Doom. And I I want to look at a few passages. Frodo, post-Tower of Kirith Ungol, is completely hopeless, he says. He is frequently saying things like, Still, we shall have to try, said Frodo. It's no worse than I expected. I never hoped to get across. I can't see any hope of it now. But I've still got to do the best I can. At present, that is to avoid being captured as long as possible. Right? That's how Frodo talks most of the time. Or Sam saying, We've got to make a dash for it. And Frodo replying, all right, Sam, lead me. As long as you've got any hope left, mine is gone. But I can't dash, Sam. I'll just plod along after you. This is how Frodo talks. Sam holds on to hope longer. Doesn't talk like that. But he comes to a point where he does. At the beginning of the Mount Doom chapter, page 912. When he's looking at the mountains and at the mountain and saying it looks every step of 50 miles. And that'll take a week if it takes a day with Mr. Frodo as he is. He shook his head and as he worked things out, slowly a new dark thought grew in his mind. Never for long had hope died in his staunch heart. And always until now he had taken some thought for their return. But the bitter truth came home to him at last. At best their provision would take them to their goal. And when the task was done, there they would come to an end. Alone, houseless, foodless, in the midst of a terrible desert. There could be no return. So that was the job I felt I had to do when I started, thought Sam. To help Mr. Frodo to the last step and then die with him? Well, if that is the job, then I must do it. But I would dearly like to see Bywater again, and Rosie Cotton and her brothers, and the gaffer and Marigold and all. I can't think somehow that Gandalf would have sent Mr. Frodo on this errand if there hadn't have been any hope of his ever coming back at all. Things all went wrong when he went down in Moria. I wish he hadn't. He would have done something. In Sam, his hope has died, finally died. You'll remember he and Frodo had a conversation a lot like this way back in the Taming of Smeargal chapter, in, in, in the beginning of their journey in the Two Towers, where he's asking Frodo, how long do you think it's going to take us to do this job? Because he's trying to plan out their provisions and how they're going to get there and back. And Frodo says, I don't know, several weeks? But to do the job, do you think we're going to really need food afterwards? And Sam's like, well, we might. We might. Frodo, remember, and this is reflecting something, an insight that Frodo had way back. Back, way, way, even back further in chapter 2 of the Fellowship of the Ring when he's talking to Gandalf in the shadows of the past. He says his journey is unlike Bilbo's. Both of them are going on a quest to seek a mountain. The difference? Bilbo's journey was there and back again. Frodo says, mine is no there and back again journey. Mine is to go and never return so far as I can see. He even had a kind of a vague sense of that before he even started or knew anything about it. And now he's even more sure about that and even more hopeless of ever returning. It's just there, maybe, but certainly not back again. But look at Sam's response, 
his internal response, to his own hopelessness, to his final and complete abandonment of hope for his own survival. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. A new strength. And a resolution. Both Frodo and Sam, in their hopelessness here, don't give up. Even Frodo's depressing little speeches that I was just reading... Note that there's still that element in each of them, but I'll still try. Lead, I'll plod after you. We must get there, but we probably won't, right? I mean, there's that other moment where he says to Sam, drink the rest of your water. No sense worrying about tomorrow. It probably won't come. I mean, he's completely hopeless, and yet, but I must go on. And he does go on. Even, you know, to when they're both crawling up Mount Dew, they, 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 they continue going. So there seems to be, then, in some sense, a kind of what seems like a third term. If you've got hope and despair, there's, there seems to be this middle ground, which is called hopelessness, but which is not the same as despair. Denethor gives up. Denethor stops fighting. Denethor says, I'm not going to go out and fight in defense of my city. Instead, I'm going to go to the tombs as if I were already dead and kill myself and my family. And that is worlds away from Frodo's hopelessness and Sam's hopelessness when he becomes hopeless. When he becomes hopeless, he becomes stronger. Maybe the middle term could be something like faith because even though Frodo can't see it or Frodo doesn't think that tomorrow's going to come, he's still going to reactions which, which implies in some way that there's a point to what he's doing. And in some way, I don't think you could call it hope, obviously, but there's He still has purpose, faith. Purpose, yeah. Faith is tricky, I think, especially with Frodo, because he doesn't talk that way. He talks like, it's just something that I have to do. I'm supposed to, and so I will as long as I can. I don't think it's going to do any good. I'm sure we won't make it. I'm sure, I'm certainly sure that even if we do, we're not going to survive. But I will keep going as long as I can because I'm supposed to. And that's kind of like faith, but not quite. But, I, but, but you're right to bring that up because this is a major factor. One other aspect of hope. Well, two things quick. Let me show you two other passages. Um, one is, again, this contrast between the state of hopelessness that they're in and despair. How Sam, in this moment when he gives up, is unlike Denethor, when Denethor gives up. And that's page 918. This is the debate that Sam has with himself. Well, come now. We've done better than you hoped, he said sturdily. Began well anyway. I reckon we crossed half the distance before we stopped. One more day will do it. And then he paused. Don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee, came an answer in his own voice. He won't go another day like that if he moves at all. And you can't go on much longer, giving him all the water and most of the food. I can go on a good way, though, and I will. Where to? To the mountain, of course. But what then, Sam Gamgee, what then? When you get there, what are you going to do? He won't be able to do anything for himself. And he realizes he doesn't have any idea how to get there. There you are, came the answer. It's all quite useless. He said so himself. You were the fool going on hoping and toiling. You could have lain down and gone to sleep together days ago if you hadn't been so dogged. But you'll die just the same or worse. You might just as well lie down now and give it up. You'll never get to the top anyway. I'll get there if I have to leave everything but my bones behind, said Sam. And I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and heart. So stop arguing. (laughs) Sam puts himself in his place. (laughs) Now, Now, you see, what is he being tempted to? What is, what is he arguing against if we identify him with the, the positive side, the one that has the last word? What's he, what's he fighting? Can tell? It seems like he's fighting despair in the way that Gandalf meant it, in the way that not 
be knowing beyond all doubt because they're the only ones that can that can know that if they give up, it's over. Yeah. They're the only ones who know that. Good, good. So one thing I think that we can see here when we're looking at hope, and we can see this distinction, we saw this distinction also with Gandalf and Aragorn in the last debate. There's a difference between hope that we're going to survive, that is hope for ourselves personally, and hope for success, hope for doing good, hope that the good guys will win against evil, right? In the last debate, they decide, let's not hold any hope for ourselves. Let's do this knowing that we're likeliest chance we're all going to die. But maybe by doing so, we can give Frodo a chance to get to the mountain and all will be well. So they don't give up hope in that even when they give up hope for themselves. And we can see the same distinction in Sam. That hopelessness that gave him strength on page 913 was hopelessness about himself. He finally gives up on his own life. I'm not going to survive. He reconciles himself to his own death, but not to failure in his quest. In fact, he gets more strength for his quest through his own abandonment of hope for himself. When he stops thinking about himself, when he stops worrying about himself, it helps him. And so I agree, we can see that here. This debate, that other voice, his other voice, wants him to believe that he can see the end beyond all doubt, not just of his own life, because he already feels, he already thinks he does see that, but of the quest. It's all quite useless. But it's not yet useless. And he's not going to give in to its being useless. Again, this is like that what makes Denethor different from Theoden or from Aemir. Both of them came to a point of personal hopelessness, hopelessness about their own personal survival. I think Aemir is even better in that way, surrounded and, and now the new army is arriving uh, at, at the docks and there's like a 0% chance of survival as far as Aemir can see, right? But it's all the difference between how you respond to that. And how you look at the bigger picture. And Sam sees the bigger picture very differently. In the tower, how does he find Frodo? He's, he sings. He's looking and looking for his friend whom he's trying to rescue, who is being held prisoner by the servants of the enemy, and he can't find him. And so in the end, giving up, he sits down and sings. And at that time, his song is taken up by his friend, who is up above him, it turns out. And is thus his presence, it is thus that his presence is revealed. We're here! <laughs> Whose stories did I just describe? Mydros and Fingen, actually. Yes. Mithros and Fingen are exactly like this. It's like an exact parallel. Well, it's not exact. Frodo doesn't have to chop off Frodo's hand uh, to save him. Not his whole hand. But uh, <laughs> I didn't write it. But, uh, he, but anyway, he, 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 yeah. But look at his son. Look at his son. Got 15 minutes to get to the crack of doom. Must hurry. In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring. 888, did I say the page? The trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. Or there, maybe, tis cloudless night, and swaying beeches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Maybe off in the west, these things are happening. Flowers are rising, trees are budding, birds are singing. There's a cloudless night and the swaying beaches bear the elven stars like jewels. Maybe in western lands somewhere that's happening. First stanza, second stanza. Though here at journey's end I lie, in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. Please follow the syntax here of his verse. Beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows, those all modify, rides the sun. 
Right? The sun is doing all those things. It is riding beyond all towers, beyond all mountains, above all shadows. And in addition to the sun's riding, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. What is his song about? It starts with a memory, a recognition. Out in the West, there is beauty and life and everything's cool. But here I am at journey's end. I'm in the middle of darkness. I'm in a tower strong and high. I'm in the middle of the mountains. I'm surrounded by darkness. I'm about to die and I'm about to fail. But what? Right, but, you know, day shall come again. <laughs> but the more days on which I can quote that line, the happier I'll be. Yes, day shall come again, he sees. But not just day shall come again at a time in the future. Also, what else? Day like no God. Day is. Outside, it's day. Outside, it's day. Now, he has this same realization, this, this other moment, even more forcefully on page 901. Frodo's asleep. Sam is lying there. But halfway through the paragraph above the break, far above the Eiffel Duoth in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peering among the cloud rack above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart, and he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate, and even his master's, ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. Now, this is a moment of real realization. He says almost exactly that he declares the same thing that he is perceiving now in his song. He declared it. But back then, that was only defiance, not really hope. Now, he sees it, and what does he do? What is his response to this insight? The shadow's only a small and passing thing. Yes, it seems really dark right now, but there is high beauty. Remember, what he perceives is that first stanza of the song. There is high beauty forever beyond its reach. I don't matter all that much. Even Frodo doesn't matter all that much. They are the most important people in the world right now, right? The whole fate of Middle-earth rests upon their quest. But, you know, actually, in the big picture, it's taken care of. This is all just a little thing. Um, remember Gandalf's last words to Bilbo at the end of The Hobbit? You are, after all. You're a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I'm very fond of you, but you are just a little person in a wide world after all. Thank goodness, says Bilbo, passing him the tobacco jar. So uh, that's what Sam perceives here. And what does he do in response? He goes to sleep. Yeah, he goes to sleep. What's important about that? What, what do we, what do we, he is making a choice here. An important and deliberate choice. It's like he's, he's putting his trust in that higher power. He's like, okay, I'm going to give that over to you. I'm going to sleep because I'm really tired. You do your thing. I'm going to rest. Yeah. This is faith. This is faith. Sam's saying, you know what? Um, this is under control. This whole situation is under control. And it's from this moment that Sam acts differently. He goes to sleep. I'm not going to worry about it. Just not going to worry about it. This is out of our hands. And not just out of our hands, in a hopeless, desperate, despairing sense. It, this is in good hands. It's the next night that he leaves Frodo. Frodo's sleeping and he takes off. I got to go find water. If I don't find water, we're going to die. So I'm just going to leave Frodo lying there by himself. 
unguarded, unprotected. And, as Sam says, trust to luck, which works out. His luck almost failed him because... Huh? Yes. And even Frodo starts talking that way. When they find the, the water, and Sam says, you better let me taste it first in case I drop dead, right? Uh, and Frodo's response is, no, I think we'll trust our luck together. And he pauses, or our blessing, right? Uh, luck as it's called, and he's not even calling it that anymore. Though, again, he is still more hopeless. They decide to trust in luck again. Well, we have no, we're just going to have to take the orc road because it's the only way that we can get down there with any speed. So we'll trust to luck. I mean, there's nothing else we can do. We'll take the road and just hope we don't get captured or anything. And then as soon as they get on the road, they get captured. Luck has failed us, says Frodo. Has it? Had they not been captured, they wouldn't have made it in time. I mean, they get, there is no way that Frodo could have or Sam would have driven them as fast as the whip-wielding orcs do to cover that, lo- that long leg of their trip. Had they not been literally driven by the orcs, they would have gotten there late, maybe a day late. Aragorn and all the rest of them would all be dead. Might still maybe have made it. But everyone would have... I mean, remember that, that urgency that Sam feels right before. Now, now, or it will be too late. Well, it would have been too late. Sam, in retrospect, after they escaped from the orcs, we trusted the luck before, and it nearly failed us, but it didn't quite. Right? No, didn't quite. Didn't at all. So, what is true hope? How do we put this stuff together? Well, the elements, it seems, looking at all these things, one, forgetfulness of self, remembering the, the bigger, the providential picture, um, despair, ultimately, is an act of selfishness, turning away. It, it's not just selfishness, but self-absorption. Notice, 100% of people in this book who think they see an end beyond all doubt are wrong. Everybody who is convinced that they see the end beyond all doubt is wrong. Denethor is wrong, obviously. We've already talked about that. Frodo and Sam, both wrong. Not only did they succeed in their quest, they both survive. And in part because it's forgetting the big picture. See, to lose sight of the star up in the sky, to lose sight of the fact that the shadow is just a small and passing thing, is ultimately just to turn your eyes inward on yourself and to expand yourself. I am in the midst of terrible darkness, and therefore terrible darkness is all that there is. No, that's not true. That's not true. You can have hope, and I agree, Rachel, here especially, with the sun and the west and the star, we're clearly talking about faith as much as we're talking about hope here. But those two concepts have always been very intimately connected uh, in Christian tradition, certainly. Um, There is a certain disregard of the powers the kind of despair that Denethor experiences is kind of like, in some ways, the despair that our Pharazon experiences in the downfall of Numenor. Jordan? Um, going along with this... Not, not, actually, not going along with this. <laughs> isn't that what Sam's doing kind of like asking for handouts from God that allows... I don't know, in other times we've talked, you've described some of the things that allowed him to survive as grace, which, as I've yeah. said, the definition means it's not deserved and should not be depended upon, that you should not rely on God to give you grace because it's, 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 it's a selfish thing to assume you're worthy. So what, what, isn't it like 
isn't a point of free will that you have to do these things for yourself. And if God gives you a hand, it's nice, but you should always try your best to do things without his help. Well, don't forget that they are trying their best. Um, all of this is in the context, as we first saw, of both of them, no matter how they feel about it, not stopping and not giving up. So they are, both of them, doing exactly as much as they possibly can do. Um, So if that's a requirement, that requirement is met. Um, Above there, it is just trust. Um, It is certainly possible to be presumptuous in the way that you're describing. Certainly if one says well, I believe that God is a good God and that therefore everything will be good for me and everything will turn out well and I'm not going to suffer because I believe in God and God is a good God and I trust in him and so therefore everything he's going to pave you know, the streets with gold in front of me. That's presumption. But that's not what Sam is doing. right? What Sam is doing is saying, I trust that he knows what he's doing, right? I, he's not thinking about God. This is not exactly a theological moment. Sam doesn't seem to have that much theology, really. He's talking about powers. He's talking about high beauty beyond the reach of the shadow, right? He's thinking of it in very non-metaphysical terms, non-theological terms, that is. Um, but... In some ways, it comes back to what Sam is doing, one could also say, is kind of the opposite of what Melkor did during the music of the Ainur. To seek to bring glory to his part of the song, to seek to wrench things to his own will. And Sam instead saying, I recognize that this is what is. Remember Iluvatar's response to Melkor. If you try... To change the music in my despite, you will serve but as mine instrument for things more wonderful than you possibly imagined. You can't change it. You can't wrench it to yourself. What I have willed is going to happen, and I know what I'm doing. And what is going to happen is going to be wonderful, marvelous. Um, Melkor doesn't want that, resists that. What Sam is doing is going with that. Okay. Okay. You know what you're doing. I'm doing everything I can. And I trust that you know what you're doing. Now, again, Sam's not thinking about it. I mean, to to use theological terms like this is not exactly right to Sam's mindset because it's not the way that he's thinking of it. But sort of thematically, that seems to be sort of the echo of it. Now, I bring this up and I quote the business about Melkor because it becomes very important at the cracks of doom, which is where we have gotten... Now, to finish it in five minutes. Um, Frodo, at the cracks of doom, at the very edge of the abyss, fails in his quest. And at first, I want to just be unconfused about that point, And I want there to be no doubt about this question. Frodo fails. He claims the ring for his own. He refuses to cast it into the fire. Had Gollum not been there, the ring would not have been destroyed and Sauron would have won. As presumably, Frodo would have lost the head-to-head competition with Sauron, which he is essentially... Remember, Sam perceives there are only two options, right? To try to conceal the ring or to claim it for his own and challenge Sauron. Well, Frodo takes option B at the last second in the cracks of Doom. And I don't think that's going to work very well. I don't think it's going to come out well. I suspect Sauron is going to win uh, and going to get the ring back. Frodo is certainly not going to cast it into the fires of doom. Um, Tolkien got a lot of very angry letters about this. There were a lot of people who were really mad that Frodo fails in the end and appears to betray everybody. And everyone was like, no, no. They want Frodo to win. And I have to tell you, it seems like, I I mean, I, I I I can understand this. I I remember as a kid reading it, I was always so disappointed by Frodo's failure. Um, And and I I remember feeling almost a little betrayed at that moment. Like here we were seeing 
sort of the birth of heroism in both Frodo and Sam. And here at the last moment, he fails to be a hero. And Tolkien is so good at heroes. I mean, I've made this point before that this, you know, it's an Aragorn and Faramir and even Frodo and Sam and Gandalf. And I mean, so many genuinely, wonderfully heroic, larger than life characters, which were incredible. Why does Frodo fail then? Um, Frodo had been choosing all along. It's not like when push comes to, fro- to shove, Frodo fails. He'd been succeeding. Every day, in the end, as it's described, like every minute of every day was a choice. Do I claim the ring or no? Do I claim the ring or no? Do I claim the ring or no? It's a constant temptation. And he said no. For weeks now, no, 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 no. He has succeeded and succeeded and succeeded. So it's not just like he does nothing, he does nothing, and then fails, right? It is victory upon victory upon victory, and then the very last one, he loses. Of course, So that's comforting. That's like just more crushing, isn't it? But I think it's an important thing to remember. In one sense, you could say he he earned success. I mean, he'd been through, he did everything he could. But in the end, he couldn't do it alone. Frodo could not just walk up to the edge of the cracks of doom and chuck the thing in. He needed help. He needed Gollum, who, in the end, proves the instrument of certainly a more wonderful thing than he ever imagined. Right? I mean, there are so many ironies there at the end, at the cracks of doom, right? The one person who could not tolerate the idea of its being destroyed. Well, okay, well, I mean, like, Sauron probably couldn't tolerate it either. But anyway, of the characters that we know, Gollum, he realizes, at the last second, realizes what Frodo's doing. They mustn't do it. You mustn't hurt the precious. This is what breaks him when he realizes this and why he attacks them. But, of course, he's the one who destroys it in the end. And why? How? The ring is also responsible for this. Like all other evil creatures that we've seen, the ring destroys itself too. Remember what Frodo has said to Gollum twice? What did he say to him on the plains before the Black Gate? When Gollum says, give it back to Smeagol. What does Frodo say? He says, never say that again. If you ever say that again, I shall put the ring on. And the ring mastered you long ago. And if I, wearing the ring, should command you, you would obey, even if I commanded you to cast yourself into the abyss, and such would be my command. Like, if in that highly theoretical scenario this were to happen, that's what would occur. By the power of the ring note and his warning to Gollum, the ring is more treacherous than you. It will twist your words. He has just said again during their fight, if ever you touch me again, you will be cast yourself into the fire. Yep. (laughs) Turns out, yeah, exactly. Why does he? Why does he touch him again? Why does he come after him? Because of the power of the ring. He can't help himself. Gollum can't help himself because he is mastered by the ring. Because of the ring's power over him. And thus, that's the power, the only power by which the ring is destroyed. Now, this is not the ring's plan. right? This is not exactly what the ring would have wanted Gollum to do at this particular moment. But it's not about its plan. All of them, the ring, Sauron, Gollum, Prove but Iluvatar's instruments in the bringing about of something more wonderful, which could not have happened. Frodo couldn't have done it. He needed help. Now, of course, also, this good outcome, the destruction of the ring, is also a product of many people's good decisions. Why is Gollum there? 
Because Bilbo didn't stab his eyes out back in the tunnels. Because Gandalf didn't have him executed. Remember Boromir? What doom did you put, to what doom did you put him? None. We imprisoned him. Oops, and then he got away. Right? Um, because Frodo didn't kill him? Or tie him up and leave him? As Sam wanted him to? Because Faramir didn't put him to death? Because Sam just had pity on him five minutes ago? I mean, Sam finally gets his wish. Remember, he had that little, like, revenge fantasy against Gollum, and now Frodo has gone off into the cracks of doom, leaving Sam to deal with Gollum, right? And Sam's like, and now? But he can't. He doesn't. He can't, while Gollum is cringing at his feet, just stab him. Let us live a little bit longer. And he does. And because of all of those good decisions, just a little bit, actually. Give me five minutes, right? Because of all of those good choices, the ring is destroyed. So it's, we see both it is the consequence of the evil will of Gollum to break his vow, to betray Frodo like twice or three times at least now, to seize the ring from himself by force, biting off Frodo's finger. The evil will of the ring, the evil will of Sauron, had he not put his own, all of his energy into the ring, he wouldn't have been destroyed by the destruction of the ring and made himself vulnerable in that way. But also, of course, by the good choices that these others have made. So Frodo fails, but he has to fail. He can't just do it on his own. That's not, in the end, in Tolkien's world, what real heroism is. None of the heroes actually worked like that. Aragorn's a great hero, but he would have died had it not been for Frodo. Remember Ganelron's speeches about the strong and the weak. Right? All, all the strong, all of the wise owe their safety, owe their lives to the weak, to the foolish. There's always this element of humility in Tolkien's heroes, that they can't just do it on their own. They're never so great that they can just reach out their hand and seize victory. That's what villains try to do and always undo themselves in doing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. We got to the cracks of doom. I am so happy. Uh, In the next... Class and a half, we will do the denouement miscellany, and we will go through and cover a whole bunch of small topics, beginning with Eowyn at the beginning of class next time, I promise. Okay, next time we will cover up to, but not including, the final chapter of The Return of the King. The end of the semester is really beginning to loom quite ominously. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.